from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Mr President, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Thank you for the introduction, Bill, and you've explained briefly what, what I'm going to talk about. I should emphasize perhaps that the logos down at the bottom do not mean that I represent the views of all those different organizations, but uh, perhaps the fact that I've at least had a fairly wide and varied experience within aviation. What I'd like to do is talk about, I suppose, three topics. First of all, a look back over the last 40 years or so, which is the period in which I've been involved in aviation and consider the factors that have governed the evolution of civil aviation in in that period. Secondly, to think a little bit about the factors that are affecting the industry's future, both near-term and longer-term. And finally, and it would probably be no great surprise to you, I might touch on the subject of uh, UK runway capacity. (laughs) Looking back over the last 40 years, and I put that vertical line in there to mark the point in 1978 when I joined Short Brothers, I think the growth has been spectacular. Uh, One of my duties when I joined was doing our strategic planning, and I think at that time in our minds we could imagine the industry doubling, but to imagine it growing sixfold as it has in that period of time was beyond anything we, we were thinking of. And another enormous change in that period is in the airlines involved. I've highlighted here on the left the leading airlines in 1980 in terms of numbers of passengers. On the right, the leading airlines in the world in 2013. And the red ones are the ones that have changed. You can see a lot of the leading ones have dropped out from the 1980 list and a whole host of new ones particularly led by the low-cost carriers with Southwest having the highest number of passengers of any airline in the world. But you can also see Ryanair and EasyJet in in that list. It's been a tremendous transformation in terms of the structure of the airline industry. And the, the global fleet has grown accordingly from around 14,000 aircraft in 1980 up to 73,000 in 2014. Again, growth beyond anything that any of us imagined 40 years ago. And if we look closer to home in the UK, we can see similar growth, not so much in the last three or four years since the recession, but still growing about five times what it was in, in 1978. And again, the same phenomenon of radical change in the structure of the airline industry. Most of the leading airlines of 1978 have gone. BA, thankfully, is still there and strong. But in terms of number of passengers, EasyJet now carry more passengers than BA. And there are quite a lot of newcomers, all of a low-cost ilk. Again, the UK fleet has grown a lot. 516 up to 977, but what that, of course, doesn't pick up, since I've only focused on UK airlines, is that famous Irish airline, which is bigger than any of them in terms of passengers and uh, has a very large fleet. 
perhaps another perspective on what's happened over, over that period of time is the financial results of the airline industry worldwide, looking at the major airlines. As you can see, there's a very nice balance between the black and the red, <laughs> but there's far too much red from the point of view of, of investors. And I'll come back in, in a moment to some of the, the factors that lie behind that. So thinking about what made all that happen, uh, my premise would be that this is quite a complicated industry and there's quite a wide range of factors that have affected the development of the industry over that period of time. Safety, and I'll touch on that in a moment, economics, the evolving business models that the airline industry has followed, technology, obviously very important, Looking back over 40 years, a tremendous advance in the level of international cooperation. The very important role of governments, although we all complain about them, but nonetheless, in terms of the shape of the aviation industry today, governments have made a very important and, and positive uh, effect. Fares, I think, is an extremely important topic. And lastly, infrastructure to enable growth. Most of the infrastructure that's been necessary has been put in place with the one regrettable exception in the UK, which is runway capacity, which I'll come to later on. But just looking at some of those in a little more detail, safety I regard as the absolute mandatory enabler for the sort of growth that has happened. If we had had the level of accidents that were not uncommon in the 1960s, I don't believe that the six-fold growth that I showed earlier, would ever have been allowed to happen. We now have very low accident rates, as you see, in the last 10 to 20 years. We not only need to keep it there, but as Deirdre Hutton, the chair of the CAA, has emphasized recently, we need to keep on improving that. Because, again, if we're going to double in the next 20 years, doubling the number of accidents is not going to be a, 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 a thing that will get, be allowed to ha happen. Economics, very important. When I look back over those 40 years, I would say there's a very strong and consistent theme in all parts of the industry of progressing and driving towards the most economically efficient modes of operation. The aircraft of today is vastly more efficient than the aircraft of 40 years ago. Same with the airlines, same with manufacturing, same with air traffic control, same, we would claim, with airports. And the travel industry itself has been revolutionized by the Internet. Fleet capacity has been a big effect. I think when you think back to that slide with the fairly frequent red downers in terms of profit, uh, over and under supply of capacity has always been a, a trend. When the good times come, all the airlines overorder. When the inevitable hiccup comes, there's a vast amount of excess capacity and that's one of the major features, I think, that has destroyed the economics of the industry on a number of occasions. GDP growth is important. I'll come to that again in a moment. Same with fuel prices. GDP growth, there's a clear, very strong linkage between GDP growth and air travel growth. I think it's debatable as to which causes which. I tend to think that they each cause the other, so to speak. Strong economic growth helps grow air travel as incomes increase. But on the other hand, I regard air travel as a very important enabler of, uh, of, of economic growth. And you can see that not least in the Middle East with the emphasis that they have put on 
uh, developing their own aviation capacity and airport capacity. Fuel prices, uh, particularly for an airline, are an absolutely critical uh, feature. We've just been through five or six years of agony with the oil price heading up over 100 uh, US dollars a barrel. We're now back to a more benign situation. I think if there's a lesson to be drawn from that spike is that if prices get as high as 100 to 120 dollars a barrel, then it will draw in much more new capacity, new production capacity like the shale oil industry in the United States. It may be a relatively expensive source, but if you get prices up around that area, you will, you will draw that production uh, in, into the system and you get the inevitable down there. My own personal guess is that around 60 to $70 a barrel probably is the norm, but we may well have fluctuations either side of that. Industry business models, uh, we've had tremendous change again. If you went back 40 years ago, it was a world where most of the big airlines were government-owned, where everything was regulated by uh, bilateral agreements and agreements mandated by ICAO and IATA. Uh, we've moved a tremendous distance in terms of creating a, an open, liberalized, competitive environment, and the airlines in many different ways have adapted to that. We can now see much more clearly the emergence of a limited number of big full-service carriers, we can see many, many low-cost carriers uh, in the larger markets. We have been through a period where hubs seem to be the only way to organize the industry, but the number of hubs has reduced a lot since the 1980s, early 90s. And we're seeing, I think, with the new aircraft becoming available, a lot more point-to-point -point services. In recent years, and it's not without controversy, we've seen the rise of the Middle East airports and the Middle East airlines, uh, and they are certainly drawing uh, transfer market share from the European hubs in a major way, and if they continue on their present trajectory, they'll be an even bigger force in world aviation. And lastly, an area which shorts were particularly involved in, the evolution of the commuter airlines in the States, which only became possible to have 30-seat aircraft in the late 1970s, and we were among the first people to supply aircraft of that size. They have developed significantly into either standalone regional airlines or feeder airlines for the majors, and it has become a, a, a much more stable and much more professional kind of operation. Technology, obviously, in this hall, a very important subject, and again, big advances over the last 40 years, particularly on engines, with the high bypass ratio engines advancing significantly, and Rolls-Royce have been to the, front, to the forefront of that. Airframes are much more efficient, uh, wing technology much more advanced. Maintenance has become a lot more scientific, if I might put it that way, a lot better organized. And IT, both in terms of computer-aided design and the Internet, have revolutionized a lot of the things that we do in aviation. Uh, it may seem a rather selfish uh, example of that, but the distance in technology between 
the SD330 of shorts derived from that marvelous Skyvan uh, fuselage cross-section to the Bombardier regional jet is a sizable step in technology and uh, to me epitomizes the distance that we've come in the last 40 years. International cooperation again has changed from being what in the 1970s was perhaps a, a bit of an exception to being the normal mode of life. Uh, manufacturing, if you think of Airbus and think of the number of different countries and companies involved in delivering their aircraft, it's very striking. The same is true to perhaps a slightly lesser extent of Boeing. In terms of organizing airspace, particularly in Europe, it's very much now an international affair uh, and air traffic control is, is headed that direction. Uh, aviation policy, there's a lot more effective cooperation, in, certainly for us within Europe, but also ICAO, recognizing that it perhaps proceeds slightly slower than some of, it might, some of us might uh, prefer, has nonetheless been a, a significant force for good. And in recent years, the emergence, the last 20 years or so, the emergence of the air, airline alliances as a way round some of the remaining ownership and control restrictions have, has been a major feature. Governments, as I said, have largely been a force for good. Privatization, uh, moving away from an industry that was almost entirely uh, government-owned in the late 1970s. Privatization has freed up the industry. I, myself, have, have been privatized twice, so to speak. Uh, and the transition from being government-owned and perpetually begging for investment that was never available to working within Bombardier and having the tools to do the job properly was a, a fantastic uh, change of, of, of experience. Same with, with NATS. NATS is a very different article today from what it was uh, under government ownership. And to be fair to governments, they had the credit, they had the wisdom to, uh, to face up to those decisions. They weren't easy decisions, but I think they've been good decisions. Similarly, government has largely led the agenda on deregulation, initially in the States and then in Europe, liberalized markets, more and more competition. There is some unfinished business around those ownership and control rules and some of the restrictions that remain in some bilaterals, but hopefully in the next 10 to 20 years we'll see the remainder of those restrictions removed. Aviation policy, I think, generally has been well handled. I think the model that we have here in the UK of an independent regulator with government focusing solely on policy, I think, has been a successful prescription, and I think a number of other European countries have headed in the same way. Airspace, you can't make advances in airspace management and policy in somewhere the size of Europe without involving governments. Again, cooperation sometimes moves a little bit more slowly than one might wish, but I think the progress is in the right direction, and the same is true of air traffic control. The restrictions of having just purely national boundaries are being eroded, and I think in the end, pro pro growth in European aviation demands that the single European sky becomes a reality. And I've put there, just to cheer me up, a little picture of Nat Swanick Centre, a, a, a classic of uh, projects that can go wrong, and uh, those of us who laboured through it still bear the scars, 
but it has in the end, with the persistence of all the people who worked in it, turned out to be a tremendously effective tool. It is, uh, in my opinion, the best air traffic control center in, in Europe. Its productivity has vastly exceeded what we originally thought possible. The safety record has been tremendous. The reduction in delays has been tremendous. So sometimes with a little bit of suffering, you can produce very good results. And lastly, on what has made all that happen, in my opinion, this is probably the most important slide and the most important feature. I think economic growth has helped the growth of air transport, but the biggest thing of all, in my mind, is the reduction in the real price of air transport. We are providing uh, a service at vastly less cost uh, that has opened up air transport to... A, huge number of people who previously wouldn't have thought of flying. It's come from $2.5 per uh, passenger, uh, I can never remember, passenger tonne or tonne kilometre or something like that, but in real terms from 2.5 down to just below 1. Very few industries, perhaps consumer electronics might be an exception, but very few industries have delivered improved value on that scale, and I think that has been crucial for the growth that we have seen. Turning then to looking forward, what, what do we think are the, is going to happen and what are the main influences that we can expect? I think the near-term industry trends are fairly clear. You can see it, a lot of it, from looking at the aircraft, air, aircraft order books uh, First of all, I think it's clear that the low-cost carriers will remain the momentum airlines. That's where the growth is. They're growing at twice the rate of, of other airlines. We think, and we would think this in Gatwick with Norwegian now starting transatlantic services, but you can also see low-cost long-haul emerging in, in Asia. We think that will be a trend uh, that will in, endure for the next 10 to 20 years. What's very important, again, going back to the technology theme, is there, there are more and more efficient versions of existing aircraft coming into the fleets, particularly on, on narrow-body aircraft. The new versions of the A320 and the 737 have transatlantic capability. They maybe can't do much more than just get across, but in due course, we, we will see those aircraft getting added range and I think that will be a big factor for the future. You, again, you can see Southwest beginning to develop services down into South America in a way that would have been unthinkable five or ten years ago. And the third big effect in, in terms of uh, aircraft types are the A350 and the Boeing 787. They make possible long-distance services which previously could only be served through a hub. They can make it possible to serve point-to-point -point services, and now that we see the effect of that, particularly in Japan, uh, who had the first of the 787s, you can see that the need for transfer passengers and the number of transfer passengers re reduces with aircraft of that type in the fleet. I referred earlier to the Gulf Airlines. I can't see anything other than massive continued growth for at least the next five to ten years, and I'll show you a slide in a moment on, on fleet evolution. And the last very important thing for us, and it's the thing that creates the runway capacity issue here, is London's continuing strength as, as a, a destination. 
and I think it will remain the best served large world capital that exists for the next five to ten years and a major attractor for passengers coming to this country. Just to look at a couple of aspects of that, low-cost carriers, look what's happened over the last ten years. The low-cost carriers have grown by 8.8% per annum in short haul. The scheduled non-low-cost carriers have declined by minus 1.6%. And the charters, I regret to say, have fared even worse, declining by 6.1% per annum. More than all the growth has come from the low-cost carriers, and at the moment I can see nothing that's likely to change that in the near future. If you look again at the fleets, you can see in terms of the low-cost carriers, their fleets are likely to almost double over the next 10 years. The full-service carriers will hardly grow at all, and you can't guarantee that airline orders turn into traffic, but these people aren't placing orders just for fun. I think that's a fairly reliable prediction of what will happen. Same is true of the, the Gulf carriers. If you look at the two red bubbles joined by the line, it shows that their fleet is likely to increase by 84% over the next 10 years or so, whereas the European majors are hardly going to grow at all. So again, this is a major phenomenon that will change the, the shape of the airline industry. That's industry trends. But if you look at the macroeconomic trends, I think there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, global economic growth is no longer as assured as it seemed to be in the early 2000s. The best guess, I think, is that it will be moderate growth and somewhat uneven growth. There's been a marked reduction in the growth rates of emerging markets. China is still growing strongly. But Russia, Brazil, India are not doing nearly as well as seemed likely two or three years ago. And I think, without being too pessimistic about it, the political risks of a variety of kinds from Greece to the Middle East and elsewhere are a lot more prominent today than they were five to ten years ago. Longer term, uh, like most forecasts, it's very hard to be, hard to be sure, but I think Many of the factors that I've identified over the last 40 years will remain important, but with environmental considerations coming more into prominence. Safety, as I said, is an absolute uh, requirement. Uh, improving safety is an absolute requirement. Economics will remain important. Industry business models will evolve. Technology, hopefully, will continue to advance. International cooperation, similarly, Governments, hopefully, will do the right thing, particularly in removing the last restrictions. And infrastructure capacity, hopefully, will be put in place. But there's a very wide range of possible outcomes on all of those. And one of the most interesting things I think I've seen in recent times is the Airport Commission's analysis. They've looked at all of these factors, and in the end, they have settled on five different scenarios without saying which of them is right. There is no 
such thing as, as right, probably. There are a range of possible outcomes covering quite a wide spectrum of, of possible in industry futures. And the other important thing about the factors for the future is many of them are outside the industry's control. And the bottom line, I would say, on those future prospects is I think there is a, fu a future with strong potential growth, but with a higher degree of uncertainty today than there was perhaps 40 years ago, and particularly from factors that are outside the industry's control. There is, I think, a high probability of tighter environmental constraints. I think the aviation markets will only move one way in terms of competitiveness. They will become more and more competitive, notwithstanding the efforts that the United States unions and some of their airlines are trying to make to constrain the growth of the, the Middle Eastern airlines. There's a very high probability of significant ongoing industry change. I've showed you earlier the churn within the lists of leading airlines in the worldwide and within the UK. I think it's highly likely that that sort of evolution will, will continue. And in my opinion, the successful business models of the future are likely to be those which can cope with increasingly strict environmental constraints that have the flexibility to adapt to market demands and increasing competition. And a lot of the airlines that disappeared are those who find it impossible to adapt to changing market conditions. And lastly, and I think the most important of all, are the business models which have a cost advantage over most of their competitors. I, I had the privilege last year of chairing Monarch as we went through a sort of near-death experience uh, between the summer and the autumn. And now that I look back on it, the root cause of the whole problem was the fact that in the good times, Monarch had not paid sufficient attention to its cost base. It had a cost base that was far too high. And when during last year there was overcapacity in a, on a lot of the routes between the UK and the Mediterranean, they simply couldn't cope. And the big lesson, certainly for people in Monarch, and I would suggest for elsewhere, is that if you don't have a competitive cost base, you really shouldn't persist in hoping that you'll get by, because almost certainly you, you won't. Turning finally to the issue of runway capacity, uh, my premise would be that this is an issue that has to be dealt with soon. It might be going too far to say this is an absolute disgrace that it hasn't been dealt with so far. But when you think of how long this issue has been around, probably for the whole of that 40 years and, and longer, and still nothing has been done about it, I don't think it reflects very well on the government capability that we have in this country. I think the Airports Commission has done an excellent job in making the case very, very clear for another runway in the southeast. Heathrow is nearly full. Gatwick is within sight of that. And the lead time for a new runway, when you take into account government decision-making, national policy statements, planning processes, and all the rest, is something like 10 to 15 years. If we don't, if a decision doesn't get made soon, then without a doubt, the UK will be losing traffic, losing business, and, and losing a lot of opportunities. There are two, you may have noticed, uh, two very contrasting cases. Uh, Heathrow focusing particularly on its 
worldwide reach wrapped up in a Union Jack, very tastefully, and Gatwick making a slightly different argument that in the end any decision around runway capacity has got to strike the right balance between the economy and the environment. But actually, Howard Davies and his fellow commissioners are not looking at uh, the posters and placards very much, I imagine, but they have set out a very detailed and thorough appraisal framework covering all the things that ought to be considered and are being considered in reaching their recommendation. The strategic fit as to which solution will give the best uh, traffic and connectivity outcomes is obviously high in the list. Economy impacts, local economy impacts, surface access, noise, air quality, biodiversity, carbon, water and flood risk, the effect on local places, quality of life, effect on local communities, cost and commercial viability and delivery. It's a very comprehensive, very thorough framework, and if that is followed, I'm sure a, a, a very well-reasoned uh, conclusion will be arrived at. What none of us know yet is what weightings the Commission will put on each of these factors, and obviously when we see the conclusion, we'll realise what the weightings were. It is our, my opinion, our opinion, you'll be surprised to hear, that Gatwick offers the best overall solution. Just look, running briefly through the main factors as we see it, uh, we think on traffic and connectivity, there isn't much to choose between Heathrow and, and Gatwick if you look at the Commission's analysis that they published in November last year. The economic analysis that was prepared for the consultation shows a significant advantage for Heathrow. There's a figure of $211 billion, which has been uh, much talked about, uh, and that's significantly higher than what they calculated for uh, Gatwick. But it's fair to say that the Commission uh, cautioned that the figures should be interpreted with, ca with caution. Uh, because the methodology used was experimental. We think that the methodology used is wrong. Uh, we have expressed that view to the Commission, and it remains to be seen what, where they come to rest. But on all other aspects, it is our opinion that the Gatwick scheme is superior. It's certainly best for competition rather than re-erecting the BAA monopoly uh, again at Heathrow. It's certainly more flexible because the Gatwick scheme can be built over a period of 10 to 15 years and can be adapted as market trends evolve. It's also a scheme which supports all airline business models, charter, short-haul, low-cost, long-haul, whereas the Heathrow scheme is optimized for a hub-type operation for full-service carriers. The Gatwick scheme is distinctly more affordable. It's roughly half the cost of the Heathrow scheme. We have committed to a £15 per passenger airport charge limit. Uh, Heathrow, we estimate, will be at least double that. We're not seeking any taxpayer subsidy for surface access. We will pay for it all, uh, whereas Heathrow, by implication, is looking for at least £6 billion of taxpayer subsidy for the surface access changes required. And we have guaranteed that we will build, bear the main risks of the development, uh, whereas the risks of the Heathrow scheme operating the normal uh, CAA regulatory system, 
the risks would rest with the passengers and with the taxpayers. In terms of sustainability and deliverability, I won't invite any of you to take on the challenge of reading what those two maps show, but uh, from a distance you'll be able to see quite clearly that the, the differences in colors uh, represent population densities. There's a vast difference between a scheme located right to the western edge of one of the biggest cities in the world and a scheme located in a relatively unpopulated part of the countryside. That means that in terms of sustainability, be it noise, air quality, water and flood risk, biodiversity, ground conditions, you name it, the Gatwick scheme is by far the easier proposition and by far the less controversial proposition. And that leads it to being much more deliverable. The planning risk is much less. The construction risk is vastly less. The disruption risk compared to putting the M25 into a tunnel around Heathrow is considerably less. The cost risk is much less, and the financing risk is less. So our conclusion is that when you go back to the industry change drivers I mentioned earlier, uh, I believe that Gatwick fits best with what I draw from the last 40 years' uh, experience. The Gatwick scheme will meet today's environmental standards and indeed can meet tighter environmental standards in the future. It has the flexibility to adapt to market demands and increasing competition, and it's clearly superior in terms of cost. Our conclusion is the little caption at the bottom, and you might say, I, I, I would say that, wouldn't I? But I can honestly say that when I was in the CAA around the time of the 2003 white paper, it was my view that Gatwick was the best option. It was an option which its then owners, BAA, had no, absolutely no wish to see pursued, so it didn't get anywhere. This is really the first time that Gatwick has been free to put forward this case independently. We think it's a strong case, and we hope that the Davies Commission thinks the same. Thank you very much. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.